Welcome, everybody. Uh, this is Sex and Ethics, and I'm Sharon Lamb here to with you today with Madeline Brote. Hey, and today we're going to podcast on something we've been thinking about for a super long time, and luckily the timing uh, works out perfectly because we've been wanting to talk about Britney Spears and her conservatorship this week on Friday, her conservatorship ended. And, <laughs> and a lot of this had to do with the work of uh, the free Britney advocates for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really good. The reason why this has something to do with sex and ethics is because you know, Brittany was sexy. That was part of who she, I mean, she was a musketeer once, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but um, she was, uh, she was a representative uh, for a certain generation of sex positivity with her dancing, um, which was talented dancing and talented singing, but also very sexual and sexualized with her schoolgirl uniform, with that uh, flight attendant outfit, with the video of her in a one-piece leotard that was sparkly and kind of see-through um and I guess the the bikini thong uh outfit that um uh was uh she wore at the VMA was that right Madeline the VMA Mm, the one where she was wearing her snake the snake around her shoulders I feel like it's very iconic Mm -hmm. um if you're a Britney fan um, and if, if folks can't already tell, I definitely was of the right age to be a Britney fan when I was growing up. So I was one of the folks who was really influenced by her music at the time, because I am 32. Yes, that maths out correctly. Yeah, and I'm 66. So I was whatever when this was going on and observing mm-hmm. it and writing about the sexualization of girls at the time. So I come from a certain perspective. But the question I have today is really you know, about how could so much sex positivity be connected to so much um, sexist enslavement, some Mm -hmm. stuff that's so unpositive, such negativity. And, um, and is that only a connection with Brittany? Or is this a connection for all sorts of um, illusions created about sex positivity that might be going too far but before we talk about that I just want to acknowledge she was a child star musketeer just like Miley Cyrus was Hannah Montana and Brooke Shields was a child star and uh oh gosh I can't remember the name of that movie she was no pretty baby yeah Mm -hmm. um and all three of them uh well Brooke Shields was sexualized from the beginning, you know, in that movie and absolutely the uh, Calvin jeans and so on. And Miley Cyrus supposedly self, you know, you know, was a part of it, but you know, she, uh, you know, there are three different kind of versions of what happens. Miley Cyrus seems to have embraced it temporarily and kind of made it, um, you know, uh, her own brand of, sexualization not very stereotypical Uh and uh kind of in your face and and the most interested in what's she doing with sexuality publicly now Brooke Shields seems to me exploited but I don't think that she's publicly claimed that she was exploited sexually in those I think she's she feels she benefited from it 
I think she was a big advocate for virginity before marriage or something mm-hmm. up on her some other time, but mm-hmm. that was another direction somebody took after, you know, going through childhood and self-sexualization. I don't even know why I'm calling it self-sexualization. These people have fathers and mothers and managers who promote them. And sometimes, as we learned from Brittany, very little choice. I'll shut up and ask you, Madeline, what do you think of this child stardust, sexy star uh, phenomenon? I think it's, it's concerning for me, especially given the examples we have here. So like Pretty Baby in the Blue Lagoon for Brooke Shields, like has some pretty explicit, I think, sex scenes that I would even be challenged by in terms of if I were asked to, you know, be naked on screen for 13 minutes swimming around in the Blue Lagoon, like as an adult, you could not get me to do that. As a, I think she was like 12 or 13 at the time, uh, possibly. As a developmental psychologist, I'm sure you can speak to this more than I could, but like, you don't understand the long-term ramifications of, of choosing to do that. And that's why like the involvement of these other adults in a child star's life are so important. It, and it's really concerning for me that, that they maybe weren't able to uh, protect or advocate for the safety of their kids in the way that they could, um, or maybe were weighing multiple possible uh, benefits when they're advising their child. Are we going to put away Brooke Shields and Miley Cyrus and focus on Britney now? Well, I do want to like say one more thing, um, which is uh, there's not a lot in terms of the psychology of celebrity, um, but I was able to find one article by Donna Rockwell and she talked about, she did a bunch of interviews with celebrities. And one of the folks that she included was a former child star. And I guess I think it's helpful to bring in this research because the former child star talked about the experience of going from a neighborhood kid to a famous TV personality overnight was life altering. Um, And that's something that the other adults said, but I couldn't imagine how much that would be challenging for you when you are experiencing this before, like you're fully formed and fully cooked as a human, Mm -hmm. Um, especially because of invasions of privacy. I think about so many of developmental tasks that kids have to go through are ones that are really embarrassing or shameful and something that you want to kind of lock away um, and how much like maybe these child stars didn't have the opportunity to do so especially for some of these more recent child stars where the like nature of celebrity itself has changed so much and it's so much more invasive and how they maybe could be creating an image of themselves based on what they see reflected to them tmz portrays me this way i must be that way Um, or, you know, this is what people come up and ask me to do. How am I seeing myself through the eyes of many other people? Mm -hmm. And we all do that. We all create an identity, a self based on our interactions with other people, but there Mm -hmm. are people who get to know us over Ah. time. And so there's something that's more, um, back and forth in the creation of the self where your, you know, your parent doesn't just see you in one mm-hmm. way, you become that, but in interaction and communication, you become that. I think that there's less of that when the per, the people or the group that you're creating a self in interaction with is the masses, your fans, mm-hmm. or, you know, your critics too, which is Ooh. probably really hard for a kid to be um star these days and have to hear the 
um, the haters out there. Oh my goodness. I couldn't even imagine, you know, I was listening to a podcast by Nicole Byer um, called, why won't you date me last night? Um, And she had Raven Simona from that's so Raven. And they were talking about the challenges of dating as a celebrity and Raven added in that like oftentimes people expected her genuine self to be really similar to the character she portrayed um so even going beyond this like very like one-dimensional understanding of a person like the character you're portraying could not have any relationship to who you are and you experience perhaps some pressure to fulfill that role or um, whenever you're developing new relationships they expect you to fill in that role. Maybe they would expect Raven to have genuine psychic visions, even though that's the person she played on TV. Yeah, that that makes me think about what Brittany was doing and what little girls who imitated Brittany were doing was that mm-hmm. they were hoping for a world in which they could, you know, dress up like Brittany or the Spice Girls or whatever and be sexy and feel sexual and not have all the repercussions of that, which would mean that, you know, men would want to control you. Yes. <laughs> Despite the lyrics literally saying otherwise. Right. Right. Yeah. That, but that's, you know, so there's a part of me that thinks, yeah, go for it. Enjoy that moment. Feel like this is the world I want to create, but don't, don't believe it. And don't forget the world we live in is still has a lot of sexism and, you know, is structured to exploit beautiful and sexual and sexy women. Very few, I think, have, you know, possession of, very few famous sexy women are in possession of their own selves and image out there. And I don't know how many handlers among them are, are men and cisgender white men. But I would guess probably most of them are probably cisgender heterosexual men. This speaks to a lot of what you've written about and the paper that you wrote in response to Elena Bei Chang about, you know, the f- limited frames that we have for sexual empowerment are dictated by what culture we live in. And that's why you and I have had, as well as the rest of the research team, have had a lot of conversations about the necessity of embodiment and mutual care when thinking about sex, because that can minimize some of these like cultural things that are at play here. I don't think embodiment would have been the answer for Brittany though. (laughs) No, I don't think so either. I mean, that's sort of like going off to yourself and understand your own sexuality and, and, you know, from the inside out kind of thing, Mm -hmm. not the outside in, but that wouldn't have saved her. I don't know. I don't know what would have saved her if not the outside world and these uh, women who were fighting for her, there were some men who could have fought for her, who understood what was going on and didn't. I think from the documentary, I forget his name, but he said, I regret not doing more once I was cut off from everything. And that's security guard who just came out recently to say that she was like every part of her bedroom was bugged. Every, her phone was bugged. Her iPad was bugged. There were hours and hours of security footage that people were mm-hmm. about her. Can you imagine that invasion of privacy to have, you know, everything in your bedroom bugged and your dad having access to it? I mean, yeah. your dad. It's an incredible violation and it's very traumatic. Yeah. I think that's something that hasn't been as much a part of this discourse is the level of harm that happened here. 
it's been more focusing on freeing her from this conservatorship, but she experienced so much harm before that as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Psychiatric, what do you call that when you are against your will brought into psychiatric hold? Yeah, psychiatric hold. Maybe I should for our for our fans, uh, go over a bit of the the Britney story in case they haven't been keeping up with it. Yeah, I think that'd be great. Timeline. I'm sure they've seen those um, photos back in January of 2008. Wasn't that when uh, she was uh, she refused to relinquish custody of her sons. Don't your heart, don't your heart go out to her for that? Yes. Uh, she just didn't want to give them up at that time. She wanted an extra two days or something. And she was being like many parents in custody battles, uh, holding her ground and saying, I'm just keeping, she wasn't keeping them from him forever. I think it was a few days or whatever. I just want them to stay overnight or something. That's when she was first put into a psychiatric hold. I don't know if that was when she did um, shaving her head thing too. I believe she shaved her head earlier than that. And that was part of the justification for putting her on a psychiatric hold. But I think, you know, even as a person who's not a mother, I can understand the desire to want to spend more time with your kids, especially during this really stressful custody battle time. Like your kids are probably, were probably what centered her and made her feel good in that time. Yeah. And so that was just a temporary conservatorship that with this guy, Andrew Wallet, is that how you say his name? How interesting. (laughs) Right. So it can be telling. Right. And, um, and then, uh, then in July, it was extended to the end of the year. And then in October 2008, some judge extended it indefinitely because she was under undue influence of, was it her manager or somebody else? Mm -hmm. So, you know, other than that, that's when it started. And then I guess um, she had a fiance for a while in 2012, who became a co-conservator only in 2016, eight years later, that she started addressing her conservatorship publicly, which they tried to um, shut down. I don't know when her lawyer Ingham got uh, hired to represent her, but supposedly she's uh, everyone in a conservatorship should have a lawyer. And of course, conflict of interest would tell you the father (laughs) the Mm -hmm. conservative shouldn't get to hire who the lawyer is. But he hired and the lawyer and the father and everybody is paid exorbitant amounts of money. Like you wouldn't believe how much they're getting paid to like, I don't know, just keep her in place. Or Yeah. But it wasn't until, was it like, I can't remember when the Rolling Stone article came out. There was a Rolling Stone article that uh, tried to free Britney and describe what she was like. And then there was this framing Britney Spears documentary this year people were um uh fighting uh for mm-hmm. one of the things i learned from watching and listening to these things was that she didn't even want to go on tour and they made her go on tour and that to be in a conservatorship means that you can't you know that you have that, no agency right and yet you know what was she a puppet up there she had no agency they didn't trust her decisions on anything they had to drug her to put her on the stage mm-hmm. at times and uh and uh and they were making uh millions and they thought that was to her benefit even though she said she didn't want to perform anymore 
Yeah. And I think one thing that I'm thankful about that maybe we should possibly look into doing a podcast about later is, is that this issue only amplified existing problems with conservatorships as like kind of a broader um, issue in our society. Like Brittany is not the only person who's experienced it. And because of the level of fame and money that's involved here, some of these examples are much more clear cut than some of the other examples of folks who are under conservatorship, but that it is kind of fundamentally, I'm going to label it as disgusting. Um, the ways that folks who have these multiple interests can guide a person's entire life. It seems like there's no way to have a conservatorship where there isn't a conflict of interest. Because mm-hmm. Do you ever give up that money you're making? Exactly. Conservatorship? It, I guess it has to always be, I guess if I go further, I guess I would think it always has to have an outside panel reviewing it mm-hmm. um, for multiple It'd perspectives. be ideal. And I think that they're, they are going to make some changes in conservatorships based on the yeah. profile. At least there's been some movement on that in California. I'm not quite sure if there's been more uh, national legislation, but it looks like that's going to be the case in California, which I think will be beneficial for many celebrities since that's where a lot of them live. Okay, so how was it that such an empowered sexual, you know, person was um, kept basically captive? enslaved for 13 years. Yeah. I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning about like, was Brittany actually the one who was sexually empowered in the first place? Or was this part of the way that her management team, her parents and some of the other adults in her life as a a teenager and, and young adult shaping her image and the ways that she was perceived? I really remember all of her music videos because they were a part of like my childhood and um, adolescence. And looking back on them now, I'm like, who said that this was okay? <laughs> Particularly her, her video debut of Hit Me Baby One More Time with her schoolgirl outfit. It seems to me that like a 16, 17, 18 year old, I don't remember how old she was at the time. That would not have been a creative concept of her own design. Yeah. And it really was- reads. Yeah. Go ahead. I think I remember reading or, or writing about a long time ago that it was somebody who had been doing porn videos who was taken on to, mm-hmm. to either design the outfit or design the whole music video or something like that. Yeah. I won't name names since I'm not even sure I'm correct at this point, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, maybe it was somewhat the beginning of boundary being blurred between pornography and videos or MTV videos. I don't know why I say MTV, music videos. Yeah. I can just imagine though, if I take her possible perspective of like, if all these adults are telling you to do this, put on the schoolgirl outfit, you know, dance really beautifully, sing really well, and then you get famous, it, it reinforces, okay, I should listen to these folks. It's art. It's fun. It's like, if you can believe all this is art, if you, you know, I'm thinking of that sort of sexy song from the musical Chicago. Ah, yes. (laughs) You know, they're saying, you know, he was asking for it and it's, you Mm -hmm. know, it's pro-murder, but it's within the context of. Yeah. (laughs) Right. It's a musical and everyone's acting and it would would be so much fun to be a part of that and an Mm -hmm. act. But there was some slippery slope that happened where people were believing these things weren't just performances. 
you know, they yeah. were messages to young girls, right? Yes. I mean, whoever thinks like the message from the musical Chicago is like murder abusive husbands. It could have been, <laughs> but nobody took that on. It could be what does society take as a as a message and what do they understand as just art and who does it serve to promote this as a real message? And you know, to make it explicit what you're referencing here, it just it reinforces existing patriarchal expectations of women existing to please men whether it's please men by taking care of the house stuff while they go to work or sexually, I think we can believe it more when it's kind of tied into existing systems of oppression. And I don't want this, our talk here to be perceived as like, I don't enjoy Britney because I too have danced in like, as had a personal dance party to Britney, like probably within the last year, I can't name when, but I think there's this distinction between like, it being art versus it being a real message is sometimes challenging for folks to understand. And what art does, I mean, I guess I don't want to say art doesn't have real messages because art moves you in certain ways. And if her song moved a bunch of girls to want to be sexy and sexual and uh, not ashamed, that's an okay message, right? Mm-hmm. Just uh, who takes advantage of that wish and that desire in girls and women and who who has and who has the power once girls and women express that desire because yeah uh, God, do I sound like some scolding mother when I say that puts you in some danger no I mean it's being realistic like if you're literally like being told I'm a slave for you what is what does that set up in terms of your expectations for relationships like well you know it's it, it, it's like so take the mother saying to the little girl who's you know wearing that britney schoolgirl uniform just go you're not going to school like that and goes, Why mm-hmm. not? you're too sexy and people will think you're a slut and people will you know that sort of or people will um uh, you might get harmed in some way you might get raped or something people oh, mom you're terrible people don't rape people because they're wearing sexy clothes or something you know the whole argument like that But now we can say, basically, hey, don't become a child performer that's too sexy, that makes too much millions, because these men are going to do everything in their power to get your millions and control those millions. Mm -hmm. That's the warning. Like, watch out when you conform to an ideal of sexiness that was pretty much male-created. You know, you might make it your own or have fun with it yourself, but watch out when you when you can make money and have some power within that realm, whether it's mm-hmm. as a porn star or as a, a child star gone sexy, the people in power will exploit you and take advantage of that. And that's what happens. Yeah. I think there's a lot of parallels here between like conversations that you and I and the larger field of folks who focus on sexual violence have had about not engaging in victim blaming, but also acknowledging the realities that could increase your risk. So I think here about like some of Sarah Ullman's work about like uh, rape resistance, you know, saying that like, actually, like if you do fight back, it's not going to, it's actually going to mean that you're less likely to be sexually violated um, or have a completed quote unquote rape. And that we need both kinds of messages, uh, both like focusing on the perpetrators and the folks who are actually engaging in this harm. And we need to educate folks about like what could make it more likely so that you can make informed choices. 
Well, if we take this out of the realm of of what is the right kind of sexy to be or the right mm. and just, just talk about the wrong of focus on the perpetrators of this, you know, how wrong it was, th- those kind of wrongs take place on smaller and larger levels all the time, which is mm-hmm. in trafficking of women, the beating down women in domestic, you know, in uh, interpersonal relationships where they're stuck and they don't feel they can leave. Uh Um, The invasion of privacy of jealous boyfriends, husbands, the stalking that, you know, uh, was like 90%, you know, men stalking women, old girlfriends. Uh Lives. So this behavior of this kind of enslaving and using for, you know, and, you know, there's just too much about what her father, her father did that, that uh, is representative of, you know, oppression of women worldwide still. Yes. And to, I think, distill it down to another example that's on that continuum you were just discussing that might be more relevant for our listeners like this I think goes down to like partners dictating to women what they can post on their social media you can't post that that's too sexy or you're showing too much of your body in that Instagram I don't want you to put that up there you know it's constraining the ability of women to live their life in the way they want to you're talking really about autonomy and that's the opposite of enslavement. And, and and that has to do with power and power imbalances. The people in power are served by taking away the autonomy of the people they want to control. So, mm-hmm. And having power gives you more autonomy. Right? Yeah, especially if it's legalized power through the lens of a conservatorship. Because I think one thing that I really learned through the podcast is that it seems like Britney Spears's dad has had a lot of power over her career throughout her career. Obviously like the the level of power has waned and waxed over time. Um, but that once he was able to get more legitimate power in the form of this conservatorship, he was able to dictate to her almost what she did every single day, him forcing her to go on stage and perform, him not allowing her access to her own social media accounts, monitoring her phone, bugging her bedroom like that. Wouldn't even um, go to a Starbucks, she said. Um, wow. Yeah. Well, where, uh, so where were the women in this? Who, what was, wasn't there some evangelical kind of sleazy woman who was in cahoots with the father at one point too? Mm, yes. Um, sticking up for the family or trying to bring the family together but actually taking money for some church Mm -hmm. that story before and then her mother her mother sounds like she just gave up like I can't beat this ex-husband of mine so you know they'll do what they're gonna do I don't know yeah it seems like Britney Spears's dad used some of the same tactics on Britney's mom as he did with Britney to kind of make her feel like she didn't have any choices and and engage in harassment or abusive behaviors. Like it struck fear into my heart when they were talking about like how like he would bully people through calling them multiple times in a row or text messaging them. And it sounds like you couldn't really escape. Yeah. Yeah. What about Kevin? Well, he's not a woman, but why, why was her ex not more supportive of her kids having 
some contact mm. with her and that that well I guess that happens all the time with images. I was gonna say divorce, right? yeah I think the animosity that comes with divorces where you sometimes lose sight of the child's best interests and are more focused on making the other person pay because you have feelings towards them, which I think is both reasonable and not super helpful for kids in this case. And didn't we hear about there was a personal assistant for a short time, a woman who like, you know, snuck in, let her use her cell phone sometimes and had fun with her, gave her a bit of you know, a, a bright light when she was mourning kind of the loss of custody of her kids. I think there was somebody there. I I guess there's this thing about, and we've probably both of us been in the situation where we know somebody's in trouble and we feel a kind of panic about what to do about it. But mm. then when we don't know what to do, it kind of goes out of our, you know, out of our radar mm-hmm. while we go on with our lives. Maybe not you, because you are so fierce, Madeline Brooke. No, I definitely have had that situation. I think for me, this all that issue also relates back to autonomy. You know, I think I so value autonomy that like, if I reach out to somebody, something's going on and they don't want to do anything about it. I'm like, okay, I guess I just have to sit and wait here. It feels like you're a bystander to a car crash that you see coming five seconds before they make impact. And I think one of the double binds of autonomy is that sometimes you lean too far to one side of autonomy, of letting someone maybe engage in an unhelpful or harmful decision because they said they didn't want help at the time. Yeah, it's so hard. But she did want help. She asked for it in in stronger and stronger ways. I remember hearing something on on either the podcast. What's the podcast that we're we're going to give a shout out to that we've been listening to? Toxic, the Britney Spears story. Yes, Babs and who's the other person? Oh, I'm terrible with names, but they're the creators of the hashtag Free Britney because they got um, a tip off early on in this most recent legal battle about you know what was going on and and what Britney actually wanted and learned that she was being involuntarily held at a psychiatric institution without her consent yeah I mean they're kind of heroes heroines hero hero I didn't say that word (laughs) 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 and that woman the Rolling Stones uh writer Mm -hmm. a kind of a hero too I love the interview with her like I didn't even like her music I didn't even know her I mean then she met her and did this story and thought she gave me the best idea of what Brittany was like as a person she's just really sweet yeah kind of and I think that was what she said in that uh, concert when she reached out to people she was something like wow guys it's really good it's been really hard for me or something like that mm-hmm. and, and same with a text there wasn't this kind of like what we what we would love to see victims able to do is just say no more I'm gotta get out um, but they're beaten down <laughs> this is years and yes. years and they don't know who's going to help them and who's going to tell their father right so, mm-hmm. you know, you don't, you know, send a little secret message to some delivery person only to have them hand it over to your father and have more restrictions or something like that. Yeah. And I think part of what is heartbreaking for me of learning more about Brittany's story is, is there were many times that she tried to reach out or tried to gain agency, but then because of the same things that kept her in this conservatorship, 
those people weren't able to help her or were, you know, coerced to, to not help her. What's going on with those psychiatrists and psychologists like our in those places? I've, I've had that experience where I've had, you know, therapy client I've been treat, treating uh, get brought in to get hospitalized. And I've had somebody I know come back out of that with like a laundry list of diagnoses and pills. Uh-huh. And, things. and I'm like, whoa, you can't even, you can't even say borderline for somebody under 18. That's not even in that hasn't stopped anybody. Unfortunately. <laughs> right. But basically we don't know what they gave her, but you know, two diagnoses have been overused against women for years and years. And that's bipolar and borderline. Right. Mm -hmm. You might say that narcissistic personality disorder has been misused for men, but I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so either. Uh, And I think the challenges with both bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder is that as a clinician, I view them so much as being related to context, context they grew up in, um, the context that they're experiencing now. I mean, both disorders are essentially about like how you're responding to your environment. Borderline personality disorder, it's so much more about like the relationships in your environment, feeling safe and comfortable and, and like you can have healthy relationships where you can have your boundaries be respected and respect other people's boundaries. Or with borderline personality disorder, you know, I'm sorry, bipolar disorder, um, that's so much about like your lifestyle. And I think about the lifestyle of a celebrity being perfect opposite of what I would recommend to someone who has bipolar disorder, because staying up all night, having weird schedules, um, you know, being around a lot of substance use, um, even if you're, if you're not using it yourself, which often many celebrities do, you know, it feels like it's pathologizing someone's existence that they didn't necessarily set up for themselves. So you're saying it's context and that's adding. And I think together, our two ideas together form a whole, because I say it's internal self-regulation for both Mm. of them, that somebody gets that slapped with a borderline personality disorder, they're unsafe and they're, they might be, or they might have bipolar bipolar two, usually in both of these uh, people have had, experienced some trauma. So mm-hmm. they're like all over the place and acting uh, like, oh, I have been in that sort of period of time when she uh, shaved her head or something, just sort of totally in your face, out of control and belligerent. And that scary people who haven't, you know, haven't been raised in environments where you mm-hmm. can tolerate anger, you know, out of control arguing or talking or something like that. There's a really self-regulation kinds of things. And I don't think a diagnosis helps somebody get self-regulated except through medication. No. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to help somebody get self-regulated, but as we're both therapists, we know that it takes time and Mm -hmm. self-reflection about that. And it takes, it really takes having a safe space and a person to practice it. Yeah, yeah. To do that, and and we try to be those safe spaces. And Brittany didn't have that. I mean, even when she thought she did, in some of her um, managers and other people, mm-hmm. she didn't have a safe. Mom wasn't safe. Her dad wasn't safe. I sure hope she found a good guy that she's engaged to now. What do you know about that? 
anything? I don't, I don't know very much about it. And I think, I guess, broadly, I would be concerned about just because of what we've been talking about, about the context and self-regulation issues, about Brittany being able to accurately perceive the intentions and motives of a potential partner. You know, when you have issues with self-regulation, sometimes you can choose someone who feels really good at the moment and is maybe more of an appropriate short-term rather than long-term partner, you know, someone to have a great fun time with and maybe not necessarily someone that you have really similar values, plans for life with. And so I guess I'd be concerned about, you know, if this current partner is the best match for her long-term. Well, she wants to be a mom. And so, and, and they, you know, against her will had her um, have an IUD in her all those years. That just seems so disgusting. Unfortunately, it's not under the conservatorship laws, but I feel like it should be. Yeah. Well, but when you think of the people that a conservatorship should be allowed for, not the broad spectrum it is allowed for, Mm -hmm. that might make sense, but it's really out of control right now. But yeah, she she's often said all she wanted to do was be a mother. And what a loss to her to have to, you know, lose her two boys and only see them once a week for a few hours. Or mm-hmm. I can see why she's turning 40 in December, why she want, might want to rush out and get pregnant sooner rather than. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I hope I, you know, I hope she gets some therapy, I guess. I hope that she chooses her own therapist and that she sees a few people and she sticks with somebody who feels right kind of hope it's a woman but maybe um, um, a man who's not exploitative would be the you know best therapy right now Mm -hmm. definitely if she works with a male it might be an opportunity to have a a healthy reparative experience with men Um, because it seems like a lot of the folks who were involved in this situation were men and I think that it would make sense for me if I were in the same situation, I would be pretty distrustful of them. I well, think- Brittany, let me just say, I know you're in Hollywood LA's, but don't see anybody who charges more than $250 an hour. Okay. Yes. And don't let them add on all these extra sessions without you and them agreeing what you actually need. Yes. I would also warn folks against people who are available to you at all times without boundaries, right? Because it is the job of a therapist to be available to folks who are in crisis. And if they are available to you at any time, whenever you wish, it would make me question their ethics and their ability to like appropriately have boundaries in the the client therapist relationship, you know, because it is natural for us maybe to like have our own lives as therapists. And check out if there are any board complaints. Oh, yes. <laughs> Board complaints. Very good. And we double checking that they're licensed, honestly, even at a baseline. Because yeah. I think I have thoughts about life coaches and other stuff like that. And so I think generally it's your best bet to go work with someone who is licensed or practicing under the supervision of someone who is licensed. And maybe I'll get slammed for saying this, but you know, don't go through your church to find a counselor or therapist. Not that there aren't good psychologists or social workers connected to churches but Hmm. you know I've I've heard too many you know stories of conflicts of interest between the church and the patient or the client's best interest 
Yeah. And that's something that we always talk about more broadly within therapy is trying to reduce the number of multiple relationships you would have with yourself and a client. Um, There's certain contexts where that makes it more challenging. You know, myself practicing in a relatively rural area that has been very interesting thus far, but in a place like Hollywood, you should be able to find somebody who does not have multiple relationships with you. And that would be unethical for them to do so. Yeah. So what's going to be your opinion if Brittany kind of recovers soon and she has her baby and then she gets her like Madonna did like body back or whatever, and then does yet one more sexy little girl videos? Not that that will happen, mm. but what will you think at that point? And, you know, will you think celebration like I'm back, Brittany's back, bitch, or whatever? <laughs> Or will you think, what have you learned (laughs) from this? Uh, I don't know. I might think both. I mean, I would be worried about it. And I would think I can totally see why it feels like reclaiming who you were as a public pop star and making it your own might be the direction she goes. Yeah, I think I would probably have a both reaction. I think part of me would be like, yay, new music to go and dance to. Um, Cause she does have a very good talent for that. And I guess, you know, speaking more broadly about clients that I've worked with, you know, healing is not a linear process. And so sometimes you work with somebody, they make a lot of progress and then something happens in their life where they quote unquote backslide and they go back to old patterns Um, Because they feel comfortable and easier than maintaining some of the changes that they've made. And I guess a a big part of me would be thinking like, oh, is is this, is this Brittany moving back to a pattern that she's familiar and comfortable with, even if it's not the healthiest one for her? Yeah. So Uh, at the same time, I think the internet, uh, she's voiced now that she has control back of her Twitter uh, or in social media, I can't remember what, what account she was speaking on, which is that she said, like, she doesn't want to perform anymore. And the big part about agency is like validating her desire to not do that anymore. I, it seems like performing in the way that she has takes an incredible toll on the body, like dancing like that every night on a touring schedule sounds exhausting. And so I would also support her just like sitting at home, becoming like, um, Tina Turner is and just hiding away in France or somewhere and never <laughs> coming out to perform again. Is that where she is? I know. I don't remember where Tina Turner is, but she definitely was like, okay, I'm retiring. No more. Bye. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll see then. Yeah. She certainly does want to get back into motherhood and things. I hope uh-huh. she finds some good friends, good people around her, has a good life. And we'll be back to on another day to uh, talk about sex, sexualization, sexual ethics, pop stars, and uh, patriarchy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Any last words about the whole Britney Spears thing before we say our usual goodbye? No. Okay, then. Well, we'll try not to keep our fans waiting so long Mm -hmm. next podcast but this one worked out perfectly for us we are so trending right now anyway (laughs) I want to say um goodbye and uh thanks to Dan Torres who uh um edits these 
podcast for us. And big thank you to all of the people we resourced for this podcast today. Anybody you'd like to thank to Madeline? No, I just want to add, we are going to do our best to include all the folks that we mentioned in the notes of the podcast, just in case you want to look those up if you haven't already been exposed to them. Um, But extra special thanks to Dan Torres for his assistance in actually getting the podcast out there. Okay. Well, here's our sign off, our long forgotten sign off. Be good. (laughs) You want me to say that alone always? I can't remember. Didn't you say it with me? Let's try it together. I will do it again. Okay. Ready? One, two, three. Be good. Good.